open up the next one, Judith. Let the light in. Open, open. You're listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast. Theatre of Sound director Daisy Evans and conductor Stephen Higgins are currently midway through a run of a new production of Bartok's only opera, Bluebeard's Castle. Their work reimagines the piece as a love story between a long-time married couple, Duke Bluebeard and Judith, both of whom are coming to terms with living with dementia. It's an experience which is also at the heart of composer Electra Perivalaris' new chamber opera, the companion piece for this production, which also features in the previous Thoroughly Good podcast episode. Daisy Evans and Stephen Higgins' staging of Bluebeard's Castle is a co-production with Opera Ventures. This intimate version of the Opera for Chamber Orchestra is taking place at Stone Nest, a stunning former Welsh chapel in the heart of London's West End. It runs until the 14th of November 2021. And it also features a cast of star singers, including soprano Susan Bullock, bass baritone Gerald Findlay and playing the two principal roles baritone Michael Mays and soprano Gwyneth Ann Rand. I attended the piano rehearsals of Bluebeard's Castle in the Jerwood space in South London a fortnight ago. Such experiences are always a good way to get to the heart of a composer's musical language. After that me, Daisy and Stephen went to a bar and drank a little bit of wine and talked about their thinking behind the production and the conversations about dementia which subsequently arise. How did that come about? How did the Bluebeard's Castle perspective come about? From my end of things, it was... Um, well, Daisy mentioned uh, that we had this opportunity to do a thing in this castle in Italy and the friend of mine who... Uh, Sounds like I've got very grand friends. She's a very old friend. She bought this castle when it was a wreck. And what a lovely friend. Exactly, 25 years ago. And it was a pile of bricks. And then I've watched her over the years, um, just bit by bit, brick by brick, bring it back to life. It's been beautiful. And she decided to do some concerts. And she, she said to me that, um, you know, what would you do if you had a free choice? Bearing in mind that I've got, got no money, not a lot of space, um, can't have too many people. And I almost jokingly said, well, why don't we just do Bluebeard's Castle? Because it's a castle. And it was as... As simple as that. <laughs> it's got castle exactly. <laughs> I mean, it sounds... Yeah, exactly. I just put, I put music, castle, you know. And it, was, <laughs> and it was either that or Mount the Hole, fully Harry Potter the musical in, in Hogwarts. Oh God, it's Bartok. Exactly. So, and, and she just laughed and said, nobody in Italy would ever do that. That's brilliant. Because they, you know, the Italians think that music begins and ends in, at, at the borders of Italy. Quite right, if you have that much. I mean, they're wrong. Well, yeah, but, you know, even doing Janacek in Italy, they go, who, what? You know, and certainly you try and do Britain there, and they never heard of it. So, so she said, this, this would really tickle me. So got Daisy out, and we just literally played around with the idea of just this piece. And I got to know it pretty much for the first time. Daisy had studied it much more than I had. And... Um, yeah, for me, it had more questions in it than answers, and I think that's what attracted me to it. And it's it's very, very um, sparing with its language, and a lot of stuff is just unsaid. And in fact, from a musical perspective, a lot of the information is said by the music rather than the text from the singers. It's really interesting. So you've got that sort of Chekhovian gaps between words and this. And, and we were just talking about, you know, this music, especially, it seems, you know, Bartok, as we know, 
from bits that I've heard before is quite aggressive and percussive and you know sort of not tonal and, and quite not maybe angry I always used to get this sense that he was quite an angry I always think that he was sort of like I always hear his music as almost like grown up Shostakovich yeah. I mean Shostakovich was angry but but whenever I hear Bartok I just think wow that's it's really edgier. It's quite angular, isn't it? And then, but then there's moments in this piece, in Bluebeard's Castle, that are the complete opposite of that. And they're just full of love, passion, emotion, lyricism, tonality. You know, all this stuff that you don't associate with him at all. And it, it just got us thinking, both of us, you know, this horror story of an abusive man that is always portrayed as, you know, someone who locks his wives up in prison and dungeons and tortures them and keeps them as trophies and then gone to the next and on to the next it didn't didn't make any sense with this love music that I I and Daisy both just really felt you know that there's a passage towards the end where he's where we're in the final room with the wives and and he's he's explaining these who these wives are and why Judith is part of the quote-unquote collection of wives and he he just sits he has a few bars with each wife but it's the mo- he says this is the wife of my morning this is the wife of my midday it's the wife of my evening and you're the wife of my nighttime and it's the most i mean it never fails to make me cry it's really the most deeply felt expression of love i just couldn't imagine that he's sort of slitting their throats or have we missed are you are you suggesting then that we might possibly have misunderstood it yeah I, I think there are like I said before it's such an infinitely interpretable piece yeah. you know are these wives I think when we were when we were doing it in Italy we were talking about these wives that he's he's lost in the past you know their their memories of that was one of our thoughts wasn't it maybe they'd all passed away and he was very sad and he wasn't trying to replace them I don't know we yeah, just he wasn't trying to replace them but you know he was just trying to kind of find a way that these four women could live in his life as his love um, something you said about that I don't think we all the other productions are misinterpreted at all I think that I think that a piece like this is so it's got so many layers that it's open to every possible rethink and you know my, at the time my grandmother was very ill with dementia living with dementia and on her last legs really and I don't know why those two things were connected but I had spent a lot of time with her and you know we were just talking weren't we about those moments when there was total lucidity and and clarity when you speak to somebody family member or friend or a relative or whatever um, you get those moments when there really really is clarity in their thought processes and, and music often is a real trigger for those moments so my nan for example knew exactly what she had played at her wedding never forgot that couldn't remember what she had for breakfast or sometimes what my name was and and also if ever I played violin songs in the in the care home all of them my goodness they knew every verse and every chorus and it sort of struck me as sort of extraordinary that music has this power to just bypass all of the other synapses of the brain and I don't know why that was in both of our minds wasn't it but we just wondered if 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 these locked doors and these hidden hidden stories were actually all locked into uh, Judith's mind and and not really very easily accessible but apart from from triggering photographs, moments, memories, musical moments, smells sometimes, tastes, um, uh, all of that stuff. It's also hard to see it sometimes, well for me going through it you know 
what really, if you go the traditional route, that she's this young virginal bride that's been brought home by this old man, this older man, and it's clearly he's got all the experience, he's got all these, you know, these are all very much his uh, parts of his world. It's quite hard, yeah, he's got the cash, and it's very hard to know who she is in that, really. You know, what is it that's... What is it that she's reacting to? You know, what, why is it that she looks at this treasury and is amazed by it? It's, it's not. It, it's much more than just oh wow, you're really rich or you've got beautiful rubies. It's. I, I feel there's such a draw. There's such a lot to be excavated from from her and her reaction. And so suddenly putting it in this context that actually she's looking at a she's looking at a young bride wearing a beautiful wedding dress and she's she's kind of almost there. You know, she's she's. She knows there's something really important that she's just not, she's not quite making the connection, but it just gives her a, gives her a weight that. It also means, presumably, that you are casting Bluebeard in a considerably more positive light. Yeah, absolutely. And I really wanted to do that because, you know, opera's, opera's full of evil men that want to kill and rape women. I, I don't I don't really want to do a story, especially as female director. You know, I, I don't want to be a voyeur and into that. I want to, I want to give, I want to give it a new, a new place to live, really, a new, so that we don't, we don't, we don't get depressed in a kind of negative, oh, this man's serial killer way. But actually, we we are. It's a very very poignant modern tragedy that nearly everyone will be able to understand. Every everyone's had a first love everyone's been to a wedding people have had children we know we we know people who have had you know every it's a very it's taking and glorifying the kind of domesticity of all of our lives and saying that we all we all can go through this and it is a great tragedy for all of us if if we were to lose our, our partner um I'm struck by how, actually, by recasting him in a more positive light, or in a different, or, or looking at it from a different perspective, which results in him being cast in a more positive light, that the timing of that right now, uh, with understandable activism around reducing violence against women, I mean that, that that then that then says to me, well, this is a very daring thing to do when when the majority of voices are saying something completely the opposite about them. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. What's interesting, sorry, may I? Yes, may I? May I? May I? If you want to know about this, talk to a man. You won't understand this. Let me, let me explain something, if I may. My tiny brain can't Yeah, it must be, you know, it must be hard. Um, uh, no, it was just that I was thinking about zeitgeist and stuff because it's like when you, when you, um, I don't know, if somebody tells you about a, a, an illness that you've never heard of, or if you yourself are diagnosed with something that's quite strange and you've never heard of it, and then suddenly everybody you meet said, "Oh yeah, I've had that, I've had that." It's really interesting, and it's not because you're on the money. I mean, I completely appreciate what you said about how topical this is, and, and also with talking about dementia as well all the, the the films that have been released this year with you know the father and um supernova and actually i was on watching the bbc the other week and every week there's a, a program called dementia and me on i mean it's it's everywhere but that's not i don't think that's why we did it but it just seems to be that you pick up on that 
on that thing, don't you? And, and the phrase that I feel like I hear every time the radio is turned on is the ageing population. We're told oh, so yeah, much yeah. about the ageing population now. And uh, yes, we are, you know, that's why it, we're hitting crisis on so many levels, really. And also the fact that nobody talks about is that during COVID, the pandemic, more people died of Alzheimer's and dementia than they did of COVID-19. And nobody is talking about it. Nobody wants to admit that. Um, because we actually failed hugely, spectacularly, because you have people that living with Alzheimer's, a lot of what keeps them going and gives them an impetus to get up in the morning is that they will see some people, they'll, they'll meet, they'll have a fresh face to talk to, or they'll, you know, whereas just start starving them of that actually was the worst thing we could have done, but we did it. I, I, the reason I was particularly interested was because my mum had a stroke, quite a catastrophic stroke, uh, about three months ago she ended up in the hospital and it was clear uh, there was only one person who could go and see her but that's because the rules allowed only one person to to visit for her entire stay um, and that was my dad and he's 86 and obviously he sort of struggles uh, and when I did finally see her in hospital which is a week last Monday, the way in which I got to see her was essentially by barging in through the ward doors. You know, that was the only way. I mean, I did it with charm, obviously, in grace, but I did barge in. And when I saw her, I noticed that I didn't physically recognise her initially. Um, but when she saw me, I had that flash of, you're there. I can see that you're there. And... She didn't know what the time was or what time of day it was. But she had a, a, a remarkable amount of detail about my domestic arrangements, I, from the last conversation we had. What I'm leading up to is that I get what you're saying, that when you're starved of that attention or when your brain is not engaged in something, that is really quite damaging. And that's evident. It's yeah. quicker, I think, without that... Uh, imp- imp- what's the word? Not impetus. The... Stimulation. Stimulation, yes. And she reported that when I said to her, how are you? She said, I'm just really bored. Yeah. And I was really like, I was expecting you not to be able to answer that question. So that's, um, where am I going with this? Do you recall when you were with your grandmother, did you experience any kind of rush when you saw that she was connecting? I really did. I mean, it was tearing sometimes. Yeah. Suddenly, she'd suddenly say to me, my eldest child, who was born um, before she was really uh, diagnosed, actually. And, but she, I remember her saying to me, and she suddenly grabbed my arm and she went, how's Archie? And it was just floods, because she hadn't said that for two years. And somehow she remembered his name, just for a second. And then later she would say, so what are your boys called? And it was really, so that was my moment of that. And it was so beautiful. Mine was about... Uh, my mother first of all my mother was saying I don't think that you should drink any more wine <laughs> I think, I'm not sure that's very helpful right now and I don't think you're in a position to judge frankly uh, and also then how is how Simon is my partner how is Simon getting on with his job hunt I said very what, what? where has this come from so uh, yeah that's because good to know the last conversation yeah had yes really yes so there were, there were lots of connections uh, uh I'm making this a lot about me, but I, that, that's one of the reasons why I was particularly interested in the project. What we're fascinated about, what we would love to be able to do in the theatre, 
is to create a series of um, of moments that everyone in the audience can just say, yeah, I know that. That happened to me, or my mum said that to me, or or you know, my granddad was just like that when he sat down, and he or his shirt was buttoned up a bit wrong. I remember that. You know, those those details of, of really observational um, presentation of a story. I think, especially because we're doing it in a very intimate, close-up venue. You know, we're not in an opera house where there's a enormous pit of musicians and you're 20 metres away with opera glasses, you know, whereas we're just here, you know, and that... I mean, we, we said to you before we started recording that we'd had a particularly intense afternoon of rehearsals, and I think it was because, actually, there was a moment which we hadn't really spoken through too much of the blocking, you know, like, oh, move here on this bar. I just said, look, I set up a kind of image, and um, they just held this uh, embrace for far 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 longer than you'd be able to get away with if you were on a huge stage because actually you can just all it is is watching emotion pass over the faces and it and actually you don't need to move because in real life you don't move you want to hang on to that moment for as long as possible and it was so devastatingly uplifting but sad at the same time and I'm so so happy that you know that Stevie and I talking two years ago over a plate of pasta <laughs> talking about hey wouldn't it be great if you could do this actually now we're here with two extremely talented incredible opera performers and my god it's strong you know so strong and everyone like even today it was very very rough you know everyone's still got their scores in their hands and it's all a bit but we had a couple of people in our producers and the room you could hear the pin drop you know everyone was was waiting for the next breath and that's incredible i recognize the lingering thing i recognize the the desire to have things last longer than they would normally you know when you caught it's almost like when you caught hold of it you don't want to let it go even though you know deep down it will go i think what i'm struck by is how your work and the conversation about it is doing something that isn't done enough, which is demystifying this disease. Yeah. Really. Even just talking about it, you know, and another thing that I'm very struck by is uh, the way we talk about old age. It's not just dementia, you know, the fact is we have Judith who's living with dementia, but we also have Bluebeard who's the one who's alone, really, and, and he... We, we're talking a lot about, you know, the weight of memory and the weight of a life and that she's she's out of it, you know, she, she's not there. She doesn't have this life that he's now bearing himself. And and I think also there's a lot, there's a lot, we're very scared to talk about old age. We're very scared to everyone. I mean, I you know, we, it's natural, isn't it? We don't want to imagine our end and our, our final years and to, to really confront the fact that maybe you've only got five years of life left to live. It's, it's hard. Um, and people don't talk about it. My, my very best friend from school, she did a long time working in, she's now a doctor. She worked in the geriatric um, and she was torn between actually doing geriatric or paediatric pe- um, because she said the level of care is so about making someone's it's not just you know in the middle there's you know you're kind of living your life and you just need to like pack something up here but but actually it's so much about how can i improve your quality of life at those two ends dignity and and it's easy to talk about um pediatric because 
you know, oh, everybody wants to make a young life be the best it can, but it's very hard to talk about how can you make an old life the best it can be. And, and there's a lot of problematic language that, that, that is out there about old age. You know, it's, it's very, very degrading to talk about an old person like a baby, but people do. And the temptation, of course, is there. But you, you forget, you forget that this person's lived 90 years of life and has lived through... It seems, it seems terribly cruel in a way that in order not only that somebody would lose their their cognition but also that those who are left uh, could be at a particular age at the end of their life when they haven't got the energy or the capacity to cope with this massive trauma it's as big a trauma for them as it is for for the person suffering from it do you remember there was a i think it was called does he take sugar do you remember this? It was a Radio 4 show. It was exactly about, about that, you know, that people don't ask, do you take sugar anymore? As you only get to a certain age, they ask the younger person with you whether he takes sugar or not. And um, it's always stuck with me that. And, that um, and I think, you know, going back to what Daisy said earlier about, about representation and how we speak and talk about uh, older uh, individuals of society, actually on the stage... Uh, is quite an interesting lack of representation of older figures. I mean, uh, especially for... We've only got King Lear, right? And yeah. <laughs> like, exactly. that's the we're only... Also, but we're also a society which, as a result of digital media, prioritises... I'm going to sound like an absolute arsehole now, but we prioritise youth over age. You know, I have lost count of how many... how many uh, projects there are for young composers, for example. Of course young sh composers should be given a chance, but what about those people who are approaching 50 who think, maybe I'd like to compose something. Dude, so I think, I don't know where, again, I don't know where I'm going with this, but... Um, I mean, you're right. general ageism in, in, in society. I think you're bang on it, bang on it. So you think, you think oh, well, you, you get to a certain age and you should somehow be in control of your life. You know, you should have, you should have, you should have got your shit together by, by a certain point, and actually, who, know, who knows when, like, when, what is that point? What, it, you know? Didn't Margaret Thatcher say anybody over 40 on a bus has failed? I think. Wow. <laughs> I'm both laughing and screaming inside. That was her definition of, of success. The uh, question that comes to mind then is, given that you believe uh, so much in this, you are clearly invested in this, how do two creatives who are working together work out where they finish their work because with something like this just by talking about it with you I just have this sort of surge of oh something needs to be done something needs to be done what, what do we need to do next in order to turn this around but but that's not what your role is here you're here to produce something so how do you both know individually and both of you together when your work is done other than the production is over it's very clear to me when in rehearsal, when you know you've got something really good, because everyone in the room will have that kind of tenterhooks feeling. And that to me, I feel when you put that in front of the audience and if you feel like the, if you can carry that through from six people to 200 people, that, and then you, you, you meet people in the bar afterwards and people are saying, well, actually, our, one of our Bluebeards, Michael Mays, said to me today after, after our rehearsal, he was watching Jerry, Jerry Finley, and he suddenly said to me, oh, my God, I've got to go and call my grandma. 
and I I feel like if we can ha- if we can have that effect where people just go oh my god yeah I need to give my mum a hug or I need to yeah check in on, check on, in. on Doris yeah or cherish I mean I, I keep thinking about my relationship and my husband and you know god I'm, I must make sure that I t- that I give him a hug when I go home <laughs> you know that he knows that and and everything I think you know if you if we can just have that very small you know we're not art and music and theater is is here I in my opinion when I see something that just makes me think a little bit or makes me think about something that I maybe haven't thought about for a while or think in a way that I I I think that's when I feel my work with this is done. I just want people to know that this is a situation that we we could all very well find ourselves in and all we can do is just to hold dear the ones we love. How do you protect yourself from it consuming you? Can you protect yourself from it consuming you? I think... I see what you've done there. You've answered a question with another question. I learned that from the... Uh, very sly. I learned that from the Today Show. No, I mean, going back to your earlier point about when, when is your work done, I think they're probably connected because, in my opinion, your work is never done, actually. Uh, I think we can keep revisiting the same... If the pieces you're working with are masterpieces like this one, I think you can keep coming back to it and finding new stuff in it. And, and in a way, it's that energy that doesn't subsume you because you just take it to a point at which you're capable of at the moment and then in 20 years time I'll be different the piece will look different and will feel different and can then be extended and then can be added to or subtracted from as so many artists find in their later years that they start painting less or composing fewer notes or is that confidence but you have to let go though don't you otherwise it will it will just drive everything the nature of theatre is that you sort of have to let go when the audience comes in because then you are you actually have a date you know it's like a, a due date for a pregnancy really that is it's exactly you know and we know that your conductor so you know you don't have that I mean I realize that you are there and and this boat is sailing and you have to be there you're in the audience looking yes, going promise no it's for Daisy to let go because I, I guess I don't let go until the last night and there's also a certain amount of of what should we try tonight that I can bring to the performances, which you don't have that luxury. I I know there are, because I've assisted them, there are some directors that are still giving notes on the final night. (laughs) The boat has sailed. I'm like, come on now, you've given birth, the child's out, it's a grown-up now, let it it be. It has already arrived at the other port, at the destination. (laughs) Exactly. important and I've always tried in my directorial practice she says pushing her glasses up her nose um, I think I think it's very very important to really make sure that you can let go by the first night I think it's really unfair to performers to give be giving notes beyond that I mean you can get you know the assistant director or the staff director is there to say oh you were a little bit out of the light there you know boring notes like that but but it's really I think it's really important that by the first night you you should have made something that's strong enough and robust enough to go in front of an audience and if you don't like it well then you failed <laughs> Wow. Okay. Does that? Oh no, hold it. I've yeah, I've been in that position, yeah. and it's not a love. It's not a nice place to be. But you know. But doesn't that also mean that you feel a bit redundant? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you should because after the first night, 
It's not my show anymore. I've done it. I've had the baby. really sorry all of a sudden. No, I love yeah. it. You've, love had, you've it. had the baby and you've had to give the baby away. Watch the baby grow up. <laughs> you can come in and change its nappies, can't you? Or check its exam results yeah. and, and give it a Make little... Make sure it's doing It's nappies. Yeah, or you, or, or you can give a bit of advice on, you know, when, you, when it's broken up with its other half and stuff. I think that's okay. I'm loving the way this metaphor is going. You've been listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast presented by John Jacob. Follow Thoroughly Good on Twitter at Thoroughly Good, Thoroughly underscore good on Instagram, and Thoroughly Good Me on Facebook. The Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast is available on any half-decent podcast platform like Google or Amazon or Spotify, plus some others you might not have heard of.